Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you, Lord Father, for this time. And Father God, we pray, Lord, that you will continue to speak and minister unto us, Lord Father. Father God, we pray, Lord, that even as we are attentive to your word, Lord Father, you will speak to our inner being, Lord Father. And as you speak, we shall listen. And as we listen, we shall understand. And as we understand, we shall act. Father God, we commit ourselves into your hands. And pray, Lord, that you make us and mold us into the type of people that you want us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 14. Exodus, chapter 14. And we are going to read from verses 1 to 15. Exodus 14, verses 1 to 15. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they turn and camp before Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, opposite Baal-Zephron. You shall camp before it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart, so that he will pursue them, and I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled, and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants were turned against the people. And they said, Why have we done this, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. Also he took six hundred choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with boldness. So the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them camping by the sea beside Pi-Hahiroth before Baal-Zephon. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you. And you shall hold your peace. And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. We are going to come back to this particular passage. I have titled today's message as Formula for Victory. And I will start by narrating this story. So the title is Formula for Victory. And once upon a time, there was an atheist king who had a minister who believed in God completely. 
Whatever the situation, the minister always said, God knows what is best for you and for me. One day while hunting, the king lost a small part of his little finger on his left hand. He was furious when the minister again said, God knows what is best for you. In anger, the king banished the minister from the palace. A few days later, on another hunting trip, the king and those with him were kidnapped by cannibals. All were killed and eaten, except the king who was released. Now, why was the king released? Because the cannibals ate only perfectly formed human beings. And the king had a deformity in his left hand. The king recalled the banished minister and narrated the episode to him. The minister had only one thing to say. God knows what is best for you and for me. So the king asked him, do you mean to say that you being banished from my kingdom was also God's plan? That was my plan, not your God's plan. No, said the minister. That was God's plan, because God knows what is best for me. Explain, said the king. Well, if I was not banished, said the minister, I would have been part of your team. <laughs> and I too would have been killed and eaten. The king then agreed, your God certainly knows what is best for you and for me. Now, that may just be a story, but the fact remains that our God knows what is best for you and for me. That is fact. Now, I don't know what your troubles are, and I don't know what frustrates you right now. Brother Claudie, while leading us in prayer, he said, you may have troubles, you may have problems, but just turn them over to the Lord. And that's what we are going to be looking at today. You may have financial difficulties. You may have relational difficulties. You may have health-related difficulties. You may have emotional difficulties. You may have spiritual difficulties. You may have official difficulties. I don't know what they are. But I know one thing. And that is this. You are exactly where God wants you to be. And he wants you to be where you are because he has a purpose that can only be accomplished when you are currently where you are. I know what some of you are thinking. Brother, you have no idea of the troubles that I face daily. Don't tell me that this is part of God's plan for me. You're right. I don't know. What are the troubles that you face daily? I certainly don't know those difficulties. But let me emphasize this. This is part of God's plan. In Acts 17, verse 26, it is written, And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. At no point in time of creation did God ever consider that you as a person should live in defeat and failure. In fact, 
you were created to be a victor at all times. In Psalm 8, verses 4 to 6, David has this to write. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with honor and glory. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hand. You have put all things under his feet. If that is not victory, please explain to me what David was trying to say. That's the only way I can understand that statement. Warren Wearsby, in his book, Prayer, Praise and Promise, writes this. When God created you, he made you a king. You may not look like one. You may not act like one. But you are one. Your day of salvation was your day of coronation. God put you on the throne through Jesus Christ. Then why do you live like a slave? That's a question. Why do you live like a slave? So let us return to our, return to our passage in Exodus chapter 14. From verses 2 to 4, we understand that God had a plan as he moved the Israelites out of Egypt. It was God who directed the Israelites to camp at a particular place by the sea. It was not the decision of the Israelites that that was where they were going to be. It was God who said, that is where I want you to be. And there is a plan and there is a purpose. God wanted Pharaoh to make some assumptions that would ultimately prove the downfall of Pharaoh. And in that process, God's name would be glorified. And the enemy would know that our God is indeed Lord. And just like those Israelites were put in that place, with the army of Pharaoh coming at the back, God has placed you at a place where you are. It doesn't matter where the, um, where, which Pharaoh is coming beside you or behind you or in front of you. God has a plan and a purpose. That Pharaoh may make assumptions about who you are. That Pharaoh may decide that you are worthy to be defeated. But remember, you are the victor. You may not see it now, but you are the victor. You see, when the Israelites saw the army of Pharaoh behind them, they reacted in typical pattern from verses 10 to 12 we see that they became very afraid. They cried out and started grumbling. That's what the Israelites did. They got scared, they cried out, and they started grumbling. Now this is the situation today with many of us. When we are faced with financial, relational, emotional, health-related, or any other problem, we react in the same typical pattern as the Israelites. We get scared, we cry out, and we grumble. Tell me if I'm wrong. That's precisely what we do. We get scared, and yet, Brother Claudie told us while praying, he said, do not fear. We, he quoted verses. Do not be afraid. Trust the Lord. Put everything into the hands of the Lord. 
But yet, we often get scared, we cry out, and we grumble. Remember, God does not want us to live in defeat, but in victory. And so we have the formula for victory in these verses that we have read just now. And that formula is in verse 13, verse 14, verse 15. Verse 13, do not be afraid. Verse 14, hold your peace. And verse 15, go forward. That's the formula. That's the formula God gave the Israelites. He said, do not be afraid. Hold your peace. Go forward. There are things that God will do in between. But what are we supposed to do? Do not be afraid. Hold your peace. Go forward. We will elaborate on this in a little while. But before that, I want us all to do a little exercise. You can keep your Bibles down. Okay. Now here's the exercise. Cross your arms as you normally would do. Some of you are already sitting in this posture, but those of you who aren't, please cross your arm. Okay, now look down upon it and see one of your hands is up, the other hand is down. Okay? Some of you would have the right hand up and the left hand hanging down. Some of you would have the left hand up and the right hand down. Okay, let's repeat it, shall we? Let's do it again. Again, look at your hands. Is it the same pattern or is there a difference? It's the same. Now let's do something different. Now, if your right hand was up and your left hand was hanging down, let's try to put our left, right hand down and your left hand up. And if it was the other way around, change it around. How does it feel? Uncomfortable. It feels weird. It feels uncomfortable. Now the question is, why does it feel weird or uncomfortable when we cross our hands in a way that we are not used to doing it? It feels comfortable crossing our hands the way that we normally would do. But when I do it the other way, I feel, I don't know, I feel weird. It doesn't seem right. It feels as if my arms are out of joint. You know, it, it looks odd. Now, simply that's, that's simply because what we do all the time is a force of habit. If we can trace back in time, you will find that the first time we ever did this, which might have been when your father made you stand in front of you as a small child of two years or three years and said, no, don't do that. And you in defiance did that. Ever since that first day when you did this, this has been the position which you have always held. That's the habit which forms from that point of time. When we try to break that habit, when we try to change that habit, it feels weird, it feels uncomfortable. And this is equally true with the way we live. We have become comfortable in being afraid. We have become comfortable about complaining and grumbling. And we have become comfortable in not doing anything about it. That's become our habit. And therefore, when God says, do not be afraid, hold your peace, go forward, it's weird. I'm not used to it. 
How can I not be afraid? I'm always afraid. How can I hold my peace? I am an expert at grumbling and mumbling and telling everybody my problems. How can I keep quiet? And I am an expert at doing nothing about my issues. And yet you want me to go forward. It's weird. It sounds difficult. You see, and these are our habits. And our habits are reflected in our attitude. Our attitude is often a reflection of our habits. God wants us to change this attitude. Our attitude will determine whether we desire victory or whether we are comfortable in defeat. Many of us are actually comfortable in defeat, you know. We get a little worried if that defeat is not around us. Things look abnormal. When suddenly you are faced with victory, you get a little, it's like an allergic reaction. You don't like it. Let me tell you about the attitude of a lady called Corrie Ten Boom. Some of you would have heard of her. She was a Jew. And she was incarcerated in the Nazi concentration camps many years back. These camps were run by Hitler. Now Corrie Ten Boom said this of her experience in the prison camps. She wrote this. The guards would beat us every day to break our spirit and our resistance. Early on, I decided that I would never give in to their desire. They could beat my physical body and break it and destroy it. But I would never allow them the pleasure of breaking or destroying my spirit. They could try, but they would never succeed. At the end, I would live victorious or die victorious. How could I do this? Simply because I knew that my God was with me. All that I was experiencing, he had already experienced. My God with me was enough for me. That's what Corrie Ten Boom wrote. And history tells us that Corrie Ten Boom was victorious. She survived the concentration camps, she was released, and she lived on to be a powerful witness for the Lord. In fact, even as a very old lady, the area that she used to go and minister to was college students. Because she said, that's where I need to make the impact. It's, it's, it's not for me to go and impact the older people, but I need to impact the young people. And that's where I'm going to have an impact. And that's what she did. Now the question is, how are we going to apply God's formula in our life? Step one. Do not be afraid. That's in verse 13 of Exodus 14. At the beginning of 2012, this church received a promise for the year. Does anyone remember it? What is it? I don't hear too many people remembering it. Isaiah 43, verses 1 and 2. And what does it say? Fear not. For I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burnt. Nor shall the flames scorch you. Fear not. And that's what God is telling us. Formula. Step one of the formula. Do not be afraid. In other words, fear not. King David 
in Psalm 23 verse 4 writes this, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. If you read carefully, you realize that David wrote about the valley of the shadow of death. He did not write about the valley of death. What's the difference? Shadows can be scary. Shadows can be bigger than life and can be scary. But they cannot touch you. That's the thing about shadows. They can only play on your mind. But they can do you no physical harm at all. However big the shadow is, whichever direction the shadow is thrown, it can do you no physical harm, but it can touch your mind. It can only play upon your mind. You see? And fear is a habit of the mind. It creates vivid pictures of failure and frustration, of harm and hurt. It has such a powerful hold on your mind that you lose focus of God. Fear in your mind replaces God from your mind. From Genesis to Revelation, the words fear not appear 75 times. And each time, God is encouraging us to focus on Him and not on the problem. I do not know what your problem may be. In fact, I have no clue at all as to what your problems could be. Often, from this very pulpit, we are told not to believe the report of doctors when we appear to have a health-related problem. Am I right? I shall add some more things to that. Let me add some more. Reports not to believe. Do not believe the report of your banker when you have a financial problem. Do not believe the report of your CEO when you have a problem in the office. Do not believe the report of your counselor when you have a relationship problem. In fact, there is only one report to believe. And that is the report of God. It doesn't matter what the problem is. For some of us, we may have health-related problems, while others may have absolutely no problem with health. God has blessed us with beautiful health, that that isn't an issue. But we have financial problems. Some of us do not have any financial problem at all. Some of us have relationship problems. You don't talk to your father, you don't talk to your mother, you don't talk to your son. These are problems. Each one of us has different kinds of problems. But the fact is, there is only one report that we are going to believe, and that is the report of God, and God's report has only five words in it. Fear not, all is well. That's all that it is. Step two, verse 14. Hold your peace. Step one, do not be afraid. Step two, Hold your peace. This is a scripturally polished way of saying it, but in the book of Hosea, chapter 12, verse 6, the prophet writes, Therefore, turn thou to thy God, keep mercy and judgment, and wait on thy God continually. 
This is the King James Version. These are the, this is the way it's written in the KJV. Turn thou to thy God. Keep mercy and judgment and wait on thy God continually. Okay? And in Psalm 37, verses 7 and 8, David writes this. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. David seems to have understood a lot of facts of life, which we, uh, 5,000 years later, seem to be struggling with. So I think it's worth going and reading what David has written. There's a lot of truth in what uh, he often writes with beautiful words. Talking of our problems seems to be a favorite habit for some of us. We like to complain and discuss and dissect and analyze and synthesize and use every other eyes that we can to study our problem. We do it to such an extent that if we don't do it, we suffer as a consequence. But God does not expect us to talk of our problems. That's not the command God gave us. God only gave us one command and that is he said, go preach the good news. Now, if your problem is the good news, please preach. Please tell all of us your problems. If that happens to be the good news that you want us to know. But I have never come across any dictionary which equates problems with good news. Problems is bad news. But the command in the Bible is, go preach the good news. And yet we have kind of paraphrased that or, uh, I don't know, I don't know what English word to use for this, but we have converted that into go preach the bad news, which isn't what we should be doing. For some perverse reason, men and women enjoy listening to the failures and the frustrations of others. Yet we don't seem to derive that same enjoyment when we listen to their successes and their joys. Am I true? It seems to give us a great deal of satisfaction to know that somebody else is in trouble. But it seems to give us a great deal of sorrow that somebody is going well. And in the church, we have made it an art to dissect and analyze the problems and troubles of each other. Instead of magnifying our God, we often magnify our mountains and then we say, praise the Lord. God says, hold your peace. Paul is one of the pillars of the New Testament church. It is only in one place where he says that he had a thorn. And he says he went to the Lord three times. He doesn't describe the thorn. Theologians have theorized as to what the thorn could be. There are unlimited number of explanations, but these are all man-made explanations. There is nothing in the Bible that says that that is the exact problem that Paul had. And yet, many of us know exactly 
the problem that this brother, that sister, that brother, that sister is going through. Why? Because the problem has been explained to us in such graphic detail that as a listener I know more about it than even the speaker himself or herself. But Paul said he had a thorn. What is it? He didn't bother to tell us. He went to the Lord three times and God said, my grace is sufficient for you. He stopped talking about that thorn. Paul said that he was shipwrecked, he was beaten, he was imprisoned. Did he dwell upon that? Did he tell us anything about that shipwreck? We probably know more about that shipwreck which just took place off the coast of Italy than we know of all the shipwrecks that Paul went through. Because Paul's shipwrecks are not described in detail. His beatings are not described in detail. The number of stripes that he, was, he had on his back are not described in detail. How many inches? How was the flesh peeling off? It's not described in detail. Nothing is there. Yet, most of his writings is all about the propagation of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul did. Two-thirds of the New Testament is Paul's writings. And most of what you read there is about Jesus Christ, salvation, your future as a new creation in Christ. It doesn't dwell upon any of his problems. So where are we getting our mentorship from? Who are we looking to? And instead of looking at people like Paul and Peter and Jesus Christ, we are looking elsewhere. And I don't know where we are looking, and this is true of all of us. We are looking at other heroes, and we are talking of our problems. In Exodus 14, verse 14, we continue to read, The Lord will fight for us. Hold your peace. The Lord will fight for us. Just before killing Goliath, David used these immortal words. In 1 Samuel 17, verse 47. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. He did not go and give any big lecture to Goliath. He did not talk to Goliath about how he was going to defeat him with one out of those five stones that he was carrying. He was not talking to him about the tensile strength of the rubber that he had. He did not describe any of the, the speed at which the missile would go. David did not bother about all of this. He only said one thing. He said, the battle is the Lord's and you will be under my feet today. That's it. I have not heard of any battle, of any war, where two commanders give orders simultaneously in the battlefield. There is only one voice to be heard and to be obeyed. The only time you heal, you hear multiple voices at the same time, usually incomprehensible, is when our politicians bicker in parliament. And we know the result of such verbal wrangling. When you and God speak at the same time, you are introducing a voice of confusion. If there has to be a talk, let it be the voice of wisdom. And you and I are certainly not that voice of wisdom. Only God is. And God said, he will fight the battle. 
hold your peace. The problem is we talk and so God can't fight the battle. We need to hold our peace. Today, let us learn to keep quiet, to hold our peace, and to hand over the battle to the Lord, for He shall fight for us. Step 3, verse 15, go forward. The Life Application Study Bible explains this verse this way, and I am quoting. God told Moses to stop praying and get moving. Prayer must have a vital place in our lives, but there is also a place for action. Sometimes we know what to do, but we pray for more guidance as an excuse to postpone doing it. If we know what we should do, then it is time to get moving. God does not take his people into lands and nations for them to sit in some corner. God did not bring us into this land to sit in some corner and whine away. The Bible does not tell us that God sent the Israelites into a land of peace and quiet. The Bible says that he sent them into a land of milk and honey. In fact, in Exodus chapter, verse, uh, chapter 23, verses 28 to 30, God says this, And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hewite, the Canaanite, and the Hittites from before you, I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate, and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you, until you have increased and you inherit the land. So don't think that you can walk into an oasis of peace. Your boss will do everything that you say. Who's the boss? It's not going to be like that. You have your part. The Lord will move things at His pace. The Lord will establish you where you are. The Lord will give you victory where you are. Not at our pace. Not at our time. Not according to our plans. He has a plan. He moves that step by step. Clearly, God's plans are not instantaneous and short term. However, what God expects from us is not inaction, but constant cooperation, persistence and effort. When you read Nehemiah chapter 3, you see that the work of God had to go on despite the opposition and the oppression all around. The building of the wall had to go on. There were problems. But the building, didn't, the building of the wall did not stop. Verse 18 says, Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side at, as he built. So he was ready for battle. But the work was going on. That didn't stop. The guy didn't stop there and say, okay, let me sort out the problem. Guys are going to court. The people of this land are saying we shouldn't build. They are going to court. They are doing all kinds of things. Let's sort out that problem and then come and build. No. This building was going on. But the guys who were building were prepared to face any eventuality. They were prepared to face the opposition at the same time they were going forward. 
Christian life is all about being a CIA. I keep quoting this. What does CIA stand for? Christian in action. Three words. Three words. Christian in action. Unfortunately, I suddenly realized that many of us have misunderstood this three-word concept of Christian in action. And we have converted it into a two-word concept, which is Christian in action. It's not Christian in action. We have made it in action. No action. So most of us have become Christians without any action. Christian in action. Okay, but what we should be is Christians in action. If we read on in Exodus chapter 14 verse 16, which is the next verse in our passage, we see God telling Moses to act. He tells Moses to use the rod that is in his hands. That's what it says in verse 16. Lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. That's what God told Moses. In Psalm 23 verse 4, David says, Your rod and your staff, they shall comfort me. Now what is this rod and staff? God talks to Moses about the rod. And David, few hundred years later, talks about thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. So David has kind of elaborated on that a little bit. The rod is a means of discipline. I don't think anybody has a problem in understanding a rod as a means of discipline. Some of us might have felt it. Some of us, some of us might be using it. But a rod is a means of discipline. So your rod comforts me. Your staff comforts me. What's a staff? A staff is a means of support. A staff is a means of encouragement. You can lean on a staff. A staff is a thick piece of wood. You can lean on it. It's not going to let you down. So when David writes, your staff and your, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David is very clearly saying, your discipline and your encouragement, that's what comforts me. I need your discipline. I need your encouragement. That's what moves me forward. Because we also know that God disciplines those he loves. So your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Moving on to the New Testament, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul elaborates on this even further. Paul writes, All scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The rod that Moses used to get the Israelites to move forward, the rod and the staff that David spoke about in order to be comforted, 
And what Paul writes about the scripture is today's rod and staff. We don't need a rod and a staff. We don't want our pastors to stand here every day with a rod and a staff and say, this is the way I'm going to discipline you. Our rod is here. Sometimes when you read certain verses, you feel the rod on your back. You know God is using the rod of the verse. You feel God disciplining you there. You know that God is telling you what you have done is wrong. You need to correct yourself. That is the rod of discipline that God is using through this word. And yet time and time again, when we are discouraged, when we are down, when we are frustrated, the word of encouragement comes from here. So today, this is my rod and this is my stuff. And as I looked at this, I realized one thing. I, I've come to the serious conclusion that compared to people 2,000 years back when Paul wrote what he wrote, and compared to people 5,000 years back when David wrote what he wrote, and compared to people a few centuries before that when Moses was given the instruction by God, we have got a lesser IQ. People of this generation have a lesser IQ than the people of old. You know why I'm saying that? Because when God gave his instruction, he just said, use your rod. Moses knew exactly what to do. A few centuries later, David had to elaborate on that and say, rod and staff, they comfort me. And a few centuries after that, Paul had to elaborate and say, your scripture is used for correction, for reproof, for admonition, for encouragement. He had to elaborate further. And today, if we are talking to people about this, we have to talk in essays. Our sense of understanding is very limited. We cannot understand a word, a sentence. We have to talk in essays. And that clearly tells me that our IQ is much lower than what it ever was. Let's be careful. Okay. Let me end with the story of the donkey. A farmer's donkey fell into a pit. It tried to climb out, but couldn't. It cried and cried piteously as the farmer tried to figure out what to do. Finally, the farmer decided that the donkey was anyway too old to be useful for him any longer. So he called some of his friends and said, It's time, for, time to bury my donkey. The donkey has already fallen into the grave. So all we need to do is take some mud and start putting it and cover up and the story is over. So they started doing that and they started shoveling mud into the pit. Initially the donkey was crying even more. And after some time the donkey stopped making any noise. But these people were shoveling and shoveling and shoveling. And then the, donk the, the farmer wondered, is the donkey already dead, probably already buried? And he went and looked into the pit and lo and behold, the donkey was standing there very nicely and every time a shovel load of mud was put on it, it was shaking it off and when the mud fell down, it stood on the mud. And so as more and more mud went into the pit, the donkey started coming up and pretty soon it walked out of the pit and trotted away. What's the moral 
of the story. Life is occasionally going to push us into deep pits. Those around us are going to smear you with mud and dirt. You have two choices. You can be buried alive in the mud or you can shake it off and move forward. Life life is not a bed of roses. God never said it would be. But God gives us the solution to all of life's problems. Do not be afraid. Hold your peace. Go forward. Brothers and sisters, it is for us to decide how we want to face life and the challenges it throws out at us. Do we want to mourn and grumble and live in fear? Or do we want to follow God's formula for victory? The choice is ours and that depends on our attitude. Do we desire to be victors or are we comfortable in defeat? Do we have an attitude to trust God at his word? Do we have an appetite for success and victory? Shall we pray? And even as we pray, let us ask God to break our negative habits and to create in us some positive habits. Let us learn to trust God in all situations. Remember, do not be afraid. Hold your peace. Go forward. The rod is in your hand. The staff is in your hand. And God fights the victory. The battle is the Lord's. Continue to be in an attitude of prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. I want us to rise up on our feet. God has given us a formula. In fact, since last night, God has been interested in the formula for victory for every one of us. And again, this afternoon is the same thing. We will take a a short chorus. And the chorus is, I have Jesus, the Son of God. Why should I fear? Why should I murmur? It's a simple song, and I want us to sing it and make it a habit. I have Jesus, the Son of God. Why should I fear? Why should I murmur? I have Jesus, the Son of God. Why should I fear? Why should I murmur? Praise the Lord. How many of us will make it our song? Yes, because God is with us. That's not all. We'll take another short one. I believe. Yes, Lord, I believe. Yes, Lord, I believe it is well with me. Is it well with you? I believe. Yes, Lord, I believe. Yes, Lord, I believe 
It is well with me, is it well with you? I believe, yes, Lord, I believe, yes, Lord, I believe, it is well with me. Father, we want to thank you indeed, because it is well with us. The shadows have tried to frighten us. But Lord, you have opened our eyes to see that the shadows cannot harm us. The enemy cannot harm us because your presence is with us. And so today we know you have uprooted every fear from our lives. Lord, the Bible says the righteous is as bold as a lion. And we are walking out of this place as lions. And the enemy will be afraid of us. Lord, this is a reversal of position. And Lord, we receive it in the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, how we pray. As we go forward this day, we begin to see your mighty power. We begin to see your hand at work in a new dimension in every area of our lives in Jesus' name. Lord, we bless and we magnify your name. Thank you for your servant that you have used. More of your power, more of your anointing, more of your wisdom, more of your revelation. Bestow upon him in the name of Jesus Christ. Blessed be your holy name. We thank you because we know you have heard us. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's share the grace. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us now and forevermore. Amen. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our lives. And we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. Amen. Go in the peace of the Lord.